the second half of the 20th century saw the rise of many aberrant Christian groups and movements. One of them was known as the Hebrew Roots Movement, emerged out of the charismatic movement in the mid-90s. This group identifies primarily as Christian. They believe salvation comes by faith in, in Jesus or Yeshua alone, as they call him. But they also believe Christians should fully adhere to the law of Moses or the Torah. They believe that when Jesus came, he did not intend to end the law of Moses. He came to uphold God's law. That means Christians are still obligated to keep all 613 commandments of the Old Testament. And so you'll find these Hebrew roots Christians ad- adhering to the Jewish feasts per Leviticus 23, avoiding unclean foods per Leviticus 11. They gather for worship on Sabbath, not Sunday. They wear tassels on their clothes, according to the requirement of Numbers 15. And some even partake of circumcision. Now, obviously, the vast majority of Christians over the past 2,000 years have not believed this or practiced this. But Hebrew Roots members believe they're awakening to the truth. And those Christians who don't keep the law, the Old Testament law, are viewed as second-rate, unawakened Christians at best, or just outright false believers at worst. And today, this movement continues. You might still encounter those who refer to themselves as Torah-observant Christians. They have otherwise orthodox beliefs, but they believe that the rules and customs of the law of Moses are still for today. Now, whether you've encountered such people or not, it brings up a very valid and important question, namely, how we as Christians living in the New Testament era under Christ are to relate to what God has said in the Old Testament era under Moses. When you read the New Testament, and there seems to be some big and obvious changes, but at the same time, like I thought God's word never changes. Can he just like change his mind, change his standards just like that? And didn't Jesus say he did not come to abolish the law? So, so which is it? For the most part, it's, it's not hard to refute Torah-observant Christians just based on their inconsistency. Never met one or found one who, who fully kept all the commands of the law. It's pretty hard to do. The 613 commands are pretty detailed and extreme. There's a bit of picking and choosing going on, but like, the reality is you, you can't keep all the commands of the Torah because the majority depend on the existence of a temple in Jerusalem, ongoing sacrifices by a Levitical priesthood, and being the theocratic nation of Israel living in Palestine. And that all ended after AD 70. And the Jews themselves grappled with how they were to live according to the law now that they lost their temple and the land. And over the years, they reinterpreted their law and and really applied it to life dispersed. And Judaism afterward became just a culture based on rabbinic tradition. It's pretty interesting, though, is how that phenomenon has repeated itself with these Torah-observant Christians. I mean, they, they know you obviously can't literally keep the 613 commands anymore, so they've, they've reinterpreted them. They have their own type of quasi-rabbinical tradition that tells them how they more or less keep the commands of the law, mostly. Is that what we should be doing? Is that the right view of the Mosaic law? In the early church, the first church grappled with the same question. That's what the Jerusalem council was about in Acts chapter 15. If all these Gentiles are now flooding the church, and are like, what do we do with all these non-Jews who want to believe in our Messiah? And the big question with, with these Gentiles, which should they get circumcised and keep the law of Moses or not? So how do they answer that question? 
what did they say? What did the rest of the apostles say about this issue in, in their writings of the New Testament? How did they weigh in on this, this big deal? And then what about the Lord himself? I mean, in what direction did Jesus point the church? Was it really his intention that his followers, the people of his new covenant, should, should keep all the rules and regulations of the old covenant? This issue of the relationship between the old and the new is massive. And what makes it so challenging is, is that the New Testament says not too little about it, but too much. There, there's a complex web of verses and teaching that we need to make sense of. God's word is clear on the issue, but it takes some serious Bible study and digging to unravel it all. That's something we aim to, to try and do together this morning. Now, the beginning of the thread we want to pull on is found in Matthew chapter 5. So, take your Bibles, open them to Matthew 5. Especially this morning, I'd strongly urge you to, if you don't have one, get a pew Bible. You want your eyes in the page, open up to Matthew 5 with us. And this takes us back to the Sermon on the Mount, which we are currently going through where the Lord is, is laying down some big truths, some, some monumental claims. We've already covered the Beatitudes, the call to be salt and light, where the Lord is directing his followers to, uh, to, well, to follow him. He's showing what it means to be a disciple, the role of a disciple. But now we're entering his teaching on a right understanding of God's law in relation to living in, in his kingdom, his kingdom of heaven. And this subject is going to dominate the rest of chapter 5, but it all begins here with verses 17 through 20, where he, he kind of lays it out. So let's go ahead and read that, that passage again, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It's where Christ says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This passage has many knocks, knots, rather, and we started to untangle it last week. We covered verses 17 through 18, where Jesus explains his own relationship to the Old Testament. Verse 18, he declares the law will not pass away. I mean, so long as this world exists, you can expect God's Old Testament revelation to exist, to endure. Down to the smallest stroke and letter, he says, and with that statement, Jesus is fully affirming the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of the Old Testament. Precisely because of that, everything it says will come to pass. And furthermore, it's all going to come to pass in him. That's the big claim he made in verse 17, that he personally is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. He's not just a teacher who came to explain the law and interpret the law, although he did. But he's the Messiah who came to fulfill it. Like It was all pointing to him. Every prophecy, every picture, every plan finds its end in him. Every part of the Old Testament that was forward-looking was looking forward to him. Now, if you weren't here last week, I would just strongly urge you to get that message. We allowed us to spend all of our time 
really in verses 17 and 18. And, and it lays the foundation of the law and the Christ. But now we're going to enter verse 19 where Jesus explains the relationship between the law and the Christian. Us. We've, we've seen what he says about how he relates to this law. What about us? How do we relate to what God has said in the Old Testament? Especially now that Jesus, the fulfillment, has come. Our mission today is, is to answer that question. And Jesus brings this issue to bear primarily in verse 19. And so we're going to pull on that thread, see where it goes, that we might unravel the church's relationship to the law. That's, that's our goal today. It's simple, but not simple. And the church's relationship to the law. So let's, let's get started. Read verse 19 again. This will be our starting point. Matthew 5, 19. He goes on to say, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, on the surface, this verse actually seems pretty straightforward. Based on what Jesus said back in verses 17 through 18, he concludes that whoever annuls the law is least in the kingdom. The word annuls is from the the Greek word luo, which is the same root word as destroy back in verse 17. He's saying the same thing, basically. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, so neither should you. You shouldn't do that either. You should not annul the commandments. Now, in context, these commandments, they have to be taken as the commandments of the law of Moses. And, And which of these commandments must not be annulled? Well, none of them, even even the least. And Jesus just finished saying in verse 18 that not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away from God's law until all is accomplished. So if he upheld every single letter of the Old Testament, then of course, not the least of the commandments should be annulled. Now, the Jews in Christ's day understood that while every commandment came from God, some were more important than others. Some were weightier than others. And Jesus himself affirms this teaching. Matthew 22, verse 36, a scribe asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he doesn't say, no, they're all the same. He answers. He doesn't say it's keeping the Sabbath. He doesn't say it's avoiding unclean foods. He says the greatest commandment is, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That commandment is greater than the others. Also, later in Matthew 23, Jesus will rebuke the scribes and Pharisees for not paying attention to the weightier provisions of the law. It says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. All this goes to say there there certainly are commandments of the law of Moses that weigh more than others. But the point Jesus is making here in 519 is that not even the least one, you work down the list, whatever it is, that the least significant command, not even that one should be annulled. Don't annul them. Don't teach others to do the same. If you do, you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, on the flip side, if you keep even the least and teach others to do the same, you'll, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This terminology of being lesser or greater in the kingdom is used by Jesus elsewhere to refer to position or rank 
in the kingdom. It's talking about believers, those who are on the inside, which is kind of where, where are they going to land? It's, it's in verse 20 where Jesus talks about those who don't even enter the kingdom. But here he's making a comparative statement. Your view of God's law and the seriousness with which you keep it and teach it will have a bearing on your heavenly reward and position. Now, it's important to point out that if Jesus were teaching salvation by keeping the law, he wouldn't have said being greater or lesser in the kingdom. He would have said this is what keeps you in or out of the kingdom. But that, that's not what he said. Keeping and doing the law as a bearing on your position, not whether you're in or out. He's emphasizing here to his true disciples, those who already follow him, they're, they're already in his kingdom by faith, that they must still be doers of the word. God's word carries his authority, and it must not be disregarded. It needs to be kept, it needs to be taught, it needs to be fulfilled. And so, that's verse 19. Like I said, on the surface, it seems pretty straightforward. Don't, don't abolish a single Old Testament command. Like I said in verse 18, that's because not a single Old Testament command will pass away until all is accomplished. Now, you hear this, and at this point, you might, you might wonder like, okay, well, what then keeps us from being Torah-observant Christians? It kind of sounds like that's what Jesus wants us to do. In fact, based on this verse, shouldn't we go above and beyond the Hebrew roots uh, movement? We should keep all 613 commands of the Old Testament. Why, why pick and choose? Shouldn't we keep them all? I mean, you, you want to be great in the kingdom, right? But I trust you, you know, it's not really that simple because even a cursory reading of the New Testament makes obvious that the apostles and Jesus himself didn't mean that. And while they don't advocate cutting the Old Testament out of the Bible, they consistently treat the Mosaic commandments as no longer binding. And the church is not under the law of Moses. This is just the plain and clear witness and testimony of the apostles and, and the Lord himself in the book of Acts and the epistles. That's where you find that circumcision is no longer a requirement for God's people. Passover, Passover observance has been traded for the Lord's Supper. The sacrificial system, Levitical priesthood, and temple worship have all ended. You also have Christ himself in Mark 7, 19, uh, teaching that all foods are clean. Jesus removes the clean, unclean distinction among food. This confirmed in Acts 10, 15, where Peter receives a vision from God, affirming that what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. The dietary restrictions are gone. Also, I mentioned earlier that Jerusalem council in Acts 15, this was a huge deal. The apostles were facing this the big first question. Uh, what do we do with all these Gentile believers? The church is now being flooded with non-Jews wanting to follow our Messiah. Like, what do we do? How Jewish do we need to make them to allow this? And the big question they faced was this, Acts 15.5. Is it necessary to circumcise Gentile believers and direct them to observe the law of Moses? That's their question. And their answer was a huge resounding no. Acts 15.10, Peter declares, he says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? It sounds like a far cry from urging them to keep all the commands of, of Moses. 
mean, just read your New Testament. It's clear something has changed. Like something's going on here. I mean, Christians even stopped observing the Sabbath per the law of Moses. That's a big deal because that's one of the Ten Commandments. I mean, can, can those change? But look, the early church understood they're just no longer bound to the law of Moses. This is why Paul can say, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. He's talking about the Old Testament regulations there. He says, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's kind of ironic because Torah observant Christians literally act as judge over other Christians who don't observe food, drink, festival, or Sabbath. But, but they're the ones that need to give an account for all this teaching of the New Testament that, that shows something has changed. And the fact is the church and the apostles understood Christ's words quite differently. And what you have here is a failure to pay close attention to what Jesus is saying in the text and the context. You know, Christ's claim in chapter 5, verse 19 has to do with the ongoing authority of the law and the prophets, which he argued for in verse 18. But that ongoing authority must be seen through the lens of of the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets, which he said in verse 17. And so like Paul says in Colossians 2.17, the substance of the law belongs to Christ. So now that Christ has come, now that the substance is here now that we don't live in the realm of the shadow anymore. The Old Testament law still has authority and value, but in, in a different form, in its fulfilled form. And this discussion all centers on understanding and appreciating what it means when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He, he did not come to abolish them. He says that, but he did come to fulfill them. That means something that, that changes things. And the big question now is, is how exactly does that change things? So let us keep going. Now, for a little perspective, listen to this verse. You can turn if you want, but Matthew 10, 34, just listen to what Jesus says, a a parallel statement in a sense, but let's give us some perspective. Matthew 10, 34, separate context. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He says, don't even think I came to bring peace on the earth. Now, is that an absolute statement? Is Jesus saying that there is no sense in which he came to bring peace on the earth? Well, no, of course not. Obviously, you know that. So many other verses teach that. Of course, there's there's some sense in which he came to bring peace on the earth. He's he's called the Prince of Peace. That was the whole point of his birth narrative, that the Prince of Peace has come. And the Beatitudes, he just blessed the peacemakers, So, of course, Jesus came to bring peace. But in Matthew 10, 34, he's making this big, stark claim to grab your attention and to make a point that if you follow him, you won't always know peace. You keep reading and you might have members of your family who who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. It's going to lead to a lot of strife, difficulty, division. That's what he means by bringing a sword. Following him will divide people. And so Christ is making a legitimate point here using hyperbole. But in reality, we all know that there is a meaningful sense in which he came to bring peace on the earth, right? 
It's pretty obvious. Well, look, it's the exact same with Matthew 5.17. He uses the exact same phrase. When he says, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. And that's another big, stark claim. It's designed to grab your attention, make a point. And we've explored that point. Jesus is upholding the Old Testament as coming from God. It has ongoing authority and usefulness. But it's not an absolute statement. There is another sense in which Jesus came, obviously, to abolish the law. Or let's just say what he said, he came to fulfill it. And in fulfilling it, that's where we see the other side of this equation, namely that there is some sense in which the the commandments of Moses are no longer binding on us. They're no longer in effect. In their Old Testament form, they're no longer binding on God's people. So now I want to show you that. I'm going to take you here on a jet tour through three big passages in the New Testament that just make clear our relationship to the law of Moses. And look, I don't know, you came here this morning. It's going to be a bit dense, a bit heavy. This is some Bible study, but with, with a question, an issue this big, it needs to happen, right? We just have to dig into the word. We are a Berean Bible church after all anyway. So, but I really urge you to follow along. The first big passage is Hebrews 7 and 8. Hebrews 7 and 8. Turn there, use your table of contents, find it, go there. Hebrews 7 and 8, first passage. Hebrews was written to show the superiority of Christ over everything. And here in chapter 7 and 8, he's picking on Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. He's greater than Moses, just like the builder of a house is greater than the house. Just like a son is greater than a servant. Christ is better than Moses. He's a greater priest, and he's the mediator of a greater law. Hebrews 7, 11, and 12 to start. We're obviously just surveying here, but Hebrews 7, 11, and 12. He says, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed, Of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. The priesthood under the old covenant, the Levitical priesthood, was insufficient, incomplete, imperfect. These mediators between God and man were not enough. And so there was a further need, even built into the law, there was a further need for another priest to come, a great high priest, a perfect, lasting, sufficient priest high priest to come, the once for all mediator between God and man. You know, that is Christ. Jesus is that high priest. And with his coming, the priesthood has changed. He's not a Levitical priest. He's of the order of Melchizedek. That's its own study, but he's not a Levitical priest. What does this mean though? The priesthood has changed. Verse 12, it means therefore of necessity, there now takes place a change in law also. He explains down in verse 18. He says, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Look what he says about the law of Moses. It was weak 
And it saved no one. It perfected no one. Of course not. It couldn't. It didn't have the power. That wasn't the point of the law of Moses. What the law really did was curse everyone because it convicted them of their sin. That was one of the primary purposes of that law was to show the people their deep need for grace. But you realize no one could actually draw near to God through the law of Moses. And that was its purpose. Under the law, the people gathered at a distance. They were always kept at a distance from God. They couldn't draw fully near. But the law itself looked forward to a time when the people would be able to to truly draw near to their God, having been made perfect. And the law and the prophets anticipate a time when God's law is not just written on tablets of stone, but on the very hearts of the people. And when his people worship him, not simply in temples made with hands, but in their very hearts as his spirit dwells within them. And that's what the new covenant is all about, which by the way, verse 22 says, Jesus became the guarantee of that better covenant. And so with Christ coming, we've got a new hope. We have a new covenant. We have a new law. Now we can draw near to God in the full. If you get all that, so what does all that mean then about the old covenant and its commandments? Well, what is, what does the author say in verse 18? His words, he says, they're set aside. The, the, old, the old ways, the old commandments have been set aside. Now, speaking of the new covenant, look at chapter 8. Again, we're just putting two chapters together here and the argument flows together. Chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. He goes on to talk about this new covenant in chapter 8. Verse 6, he says, But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. That's a simple point, right? The law of Moses is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's the covenant by which God related to his people, Israel. Who was Israel? They're an ethnic theocratic nation planted in the Holy Land, that they might be a light to the nations around them. Israel was never able to accomplish that mission because the old covenant could not do for them what they needed. Namely, give them new hearts, enable them to keep God's word. But this is precisely what God would provide in the new covenant, better promises. And look, now that Christ has come and his new covenant, which he inaugurated on the cross, Again, our question today, what does that mean for the old covenant? Verse 13, he answers. He says, when he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. He says that in his fulfillment, Christ made the old obsolete. It's growing old. It's ready to disappear. This is a term of abrogation. And look, the author of Hebrews has the highest view of the Old Testament possible. It's not worthless. It should not be cut out of the Old Testament, of course, or the Bible. It's still useful. It's still authoritative. Listen, but the letter of the law is no longer binding because we're no longer under the law of Moses. The form of God's law over his people has changed now that Christ, the new high priest, has come. 
And you keep reading Hebrews 8, 9, 10, you find the author doesn't say any less than this. He just keeps saying more. Well, let, let's, let's keep going and add in a second big passage. We'll fill in some more blanks. So next, the second big passage I want to show you is Galatians 3 through 5. Picking on some verses in Galatians 3 through 5. So again, turn there, find it. Galatians 3 through 5. And here's where we're going to hear the Apostle Paul weigh in. And Paul easily has the most to say about how the Mosaic law relates to the church. That's the primary point of his letter to the Galatians. That's because these believers were being deceived by others who had a wrong view of the law. So he's writing here to set the record straight. That's, that's why he's writing this letter. Sounds like we should probably look at this letter. And throughout the whole thing, Paul argues the law, the law has never been a means of salvation. The law saved no one. That's not the point. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, no one was justified by the law. And Paul shows that, that God's promise of salvation was always tied to the Abrahamic covenant, the promises to Abraham, not to the Mosaic covenant. All right, if that's the case, though, like you're going to ask, then what's the point of the law of Moses? Why did God give the people this law then if it wasn't to justify them? Well, Galatians 3.19, he asked that question. Why the law then? It was added, because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, he says, until, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. God promised always to save his people by faith. Salvation has always been by faith and faith alone. That promise would be fulfilled through a seed of Abraham, That seed was Israel's hope as well. Their seed, their savior was their hope for this salvation. And the law was given in one part to show them their further need for this seed to come. The savior. The law showed them their transgressions, their utter sinfulness, how they they couldn't be justified on their own. The law made them utterly dependent on God and his grace. But he says in verse 21, the law had never had the ability to impart life. He adds in verse 23, he says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. And talking about faith in Christ, of course. And Paul is speaking collectively of Israel when he says we, and the law is kind of pictured like a jailer here. It's, it's keeping Israel trapped in sin. And because of the obvious fact they couldn't keep this law, what did it do? It didn't save them. It just cursed them. Because cursed is he who does not abide by everything written in the law. It just cursed everybody, convicted and condemned all of them and kept them waiting though, but it also pointed them to the way. He says in verse 24, therefore, right next verse, he says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law is not an evil jailer. It's really more like a tutor, a guardian. And God placed the law of Moses over Israel to be their escort, their guardian, to prepare them for the time of the Messiah that that when he comes, they might receive him. And even in the Old Testament, they could have had faith in God and his promises, even in shadow form, to be saved. But here's the thing. Uh, The Messiah has come. It's kind of a big deal. The Messiah has come. So 
The same question we keep asking, what does that mean for the old law? What does that mean for the guardianship of the law? Next verse, verse 25. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The promise of salvation through faith in Christ has come. That promised seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, seed of David has come. And so now that Christ has come, what happened to that tutor meant to just steward the nation of Israel until their Messiah came? Well, again, speaking collectively of we as Israel, we're no longer under a tutor, which means we're no longer under the law of Moses. Instead, we're united to Christ directly and we're heirs of his promise through Abraham, not Moses, through faith, not law. Chapter four, all throughout chapter four, Paul goes on to display the superiority of this promise of faith over the law of Moses. Verse four, the fullness of the time has come. Verse five, God has redeemed those under the law. Verse six, they're adopted as sons and given the spirit. And therefore, he says there's no need for them to return to the tutor of the law. The Christ and the spirit have come. So therefore, now chapter five, verse one, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And he's talking about the law of Moses there. And Christ has set us free from what? From the curse of the law, from the burden of the law. And it said, Christ now calls us to follow, not the law of Moses, but the law of love which is the law of Christ. He says in verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. That's a huge statement for a Jew, but faith working through love. Verse 14, for the whole law, the whole law is fulfilled. There's that word again, fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God still cares how we live. We're still called to holiness. It's just that the law of Moses no longer directs us on what that looks like. We no longer walk according to the law, but according to what? The spirit. The spirit has come. The spirit is now our main guide for how we are to live. If you walk by the spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Verse 16, verse 18. If you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law, law of Moses. If you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law of Moses. God has given us a new law. It's written where? On the heart, per the new covenant. The Holy Spirit guides us into God's will. The law of Moses has been replaced. What part of it? All of it, like the whole thing came as a package. It's all been replaced. It's found its fulfillment in Christ. The promised seed has come. So we're no longer under the tutor. It seems pretty clear. And so now we're left to live the Christian life, life under a new covenant where we're guided into God's will, not by a law written on stone, but by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And as you walk by the Spirit, what happens? You bear the fruit of the Spirit, which he says in verse 23, against such things there is no law. What's the chief fruit of the Spirit? Love. 
It says you walk by the Spirit, you carry out this law of love, which means you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You love your neighbors yourself. You only do that which fits with those two commands. Well, therefore, you then fulfill the law of love, which is, chapter 6, verse 2, the law of Christ. Paul calls it now the law of Christ, and that's how we fulfill it. Well, one more. I told you this is going to be a lot. This is dense. I only hope that by pulling on these threads, it's not making the knot worse in your mind. Sometimes that happens. But listen, God's word is consistent on this issue. There's one more big passage I want to take you to before we finish. Romans 7 and 8. Romans chapter 7 and 8. The third big passage, which will, again, tell us even more. So one more. Turn to Romans 7 and 8. Galatians is like a mini Romans. Paul wrote Galatians first to address these issues. Many years later, he writes to Rome, addressing many of the same issues, but he has more space. He fleshes out these same things with, with a lot more detail. And so we, we learn even more in Romans. He starts off in Romans 7, verse 1. He said, it's 7 and 8, where he's going to talk about our relationship to the law. We're justified by faith apart from the law. What does that mean about the law then? Do we just ignore it? He's going to explain. He says, do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, this principle is true for all law, but he's going to obviously apply it to the law of Moses. He's going to argue that the church is no longer under the jurisdiction of the law of Moses. You guys get jurisdiction. It's all about a boundary of authority. I mean, that the hope of every criminal is to cross the border, make it to Mexico. Because if they can get to Mexico, they're, they're no longer within the jurisdiction of U.S. law, and, and they think they're free. And often they are. Because U.S. laws can't, can't touch them there. They don't have jurisdiction. And Paul is going to argue that the jurisdiction of the law of Moses has ended for God's people. We've moved. We're not under that jurisdiction anymore. Then he goes on to use an illustration of death. Just as a marriage covenant is lawfully ended by the death of a spouse, well, so the Mosaic covenant has been lawfully ended by death. It's only, it's only it's our death. We're the ones who died. He connects the dots in verse 4. Romans 7, 4. He says, Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. He's making the point that in coming to Christ, we're the dead party. We've died to the old self and risen to new life in Christ. That was Romans 6. We've died to the law, which means we're no longer married to that law, no longer bound to the old covenant. We're freed from the stipulations. They've been fulfilled in Christ. And now, legally, we're joined to another. Verse 5. It says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now that we've been released from the law, having died to that, which, uh, that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. When you catch that in verse 6, we've been released from the law. Not all law, just, just the law of Moses. 
But now we serve in newness of the spirit, not oldness of the letter, newness of the spirit. The new has come, Christ, the old fades away, the law. And one more here, Romans 8, Paul even further fleshes out this law, spirit, this flesh, spirit contrast in Romans 8. Look at now Romans 8, verse 2. Romans 8, verse 2, he says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now we're talking about two different laws. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're now under a new law. He calls it the law of the spirit of life. And so we've been set free from the law of sin and death, which is the law of Moses. What part of it? Again, the whole thing, all of it. It's, it's just one law. It's always a unit. The whole thing has been fulfilled. Christ, in Christ, the requirement of the law, the demand of the law, which was perfect righteousness, we could never attain by the law itself. But that requirement, that demand has been fulfilled for us. And so now in verse four, we do not walk, live according to the flesh or the law, but according to what? Once again, the spirit, the law of Moses does not direct our lives like it did before uh, Christ for Israel. Now God's spirit directs our lives directly within us. Does God still care how we live? Well, yes, of course, but he's given us a much better guide, the spirit. The law of Moses served its purpose for Israel. But now that, that Christ has come and his spirit has come, I mean, it's going to change things and things are better. This is an upgrade in God's law governing his people. And I know the, the biggest objection to all this teaching that the law of Moses is no longer binding is that if you take God's law away, it's going to result in lawlessness. People are going to just give in to sin and licentiousness because they have no moral bound, they have no law keeping them in check. But look, scripture never says we're lawless. We're still under law. It's just now called the law of Christ. It's a different law, different priest. That law still directs our behavior. Where do we learn about it? It's first and foremost embodied in the life and the teaching of Christ and also his apostles. But God still very much cares that we live holy, righteous lives. Just now he's given us his spirit that we can actually do that and bear fruit for God. And like, don't sell short the Holy Spirit. Like, that's a key feature of the new covenant. As we've seen over many verses, it's the Spirit who now moves us to true heart-level obedience to God's will. And shedding the old form of God's law written on tablets of stone, it's, it's not a downgrade. We, we have a higher form of God's will for his people, his law. And so wouldn't you prefer... Union with Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the law written on the heart, which is elucidated by the New Testament, that's an upgrade. And look, there's no shortage of, of more verses and passages to which we could turn and learn even more, but I resolve not to let this one sermon turn into three, so let's just draw some conclusions. You can go back to Matthew 5. You know, Matthew 5, 17 through 19 
You have Jesus first. He's upholding the entire Old Testament canon. He doesn't abolish or delete any part of it. Not a single command. The Old Testament has ongoing relevance and authority. But that relevance is now seen entirely through its fulfillment in Christ. So the form it takes will change. The way it's applied will change. And while the law and the prophets are still the inspired word of God, the role they play has changed now that what they anticipated has come. The coming of Christ has changed things, as has the coming of his spirit and his new covenant. We are still very much under God's law, but in its fulfilled form, which the New Testament calls the law of Christ or the law of love, the law of liberty, the law of the spirit of life. It was by many names. But the old tutor, the letter of the law, the guide for theocratic national Israel, I mean, it served its purpose. And therefore, the law of Moses, it's no longer the guide for how God's people should live or conduct themselves in his kingdom, at least not by the letter. In principle, 100%. By the letter, no more. That kingdom, by the way, after all, it's been expanded beyond the borders of ethnic Israel living in the promised land. The kingdom is represented now in the church, which is all the redeemed of all the nations across all borders. And the Lord has given his law, the law of Christ, to govern that body, which is quite different from Israel in the Old Testament. And so we now look to Christ to learn how God wants us to walk in righteousness before him. And so our code of conduct as citizens of of this kingdom of heaven, which he talks about in the Beatitudes, it's found, like I said, first and foremost in the life and the teachings of Christ himself, as well as his apostles. By the way, this is what the New Testament is. It's, it's the revelation of God according to the New Testament, which Latin goes back to the New Covenant. It's just what we were given about life under this New Covenant. And it's not surprising, by the way, that in the rest of Matthew 5, Jesus is going to start showing us, giving us his own inspired understanding of how the old applies to life under his kingdom, how it, it, it still has relevance and authority, not by the letter, but by the Spirit. He's going to show us that in the rest of the chapter. That will save for the future. Just to finish then, I want to bring out two practical points from all this Bible study you made it through, but we can derive a couple of very practical points, simple, but valuable and believe them. First, don't neglect the Old Testament. Really believe that. Don't neglect the Old Testament. Yes, it's fulfilled. The letter of the law has been fulfilled, but that does not mean now we avoid it, we neglect it. It's okay to skip it in your Bible reading. No, you take verse 19 seriously. There is a blessing with knowing it, doing it, teaching it. Now we've established that's going to happen in its fulfilled form, but nonetheless, it still has ongoing authority and relevance. We have a rich treasure of God's revelation in the Old Testament. We relate to it just like 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us to. It says all scripture. And back then he was talking about the Old Testament. That, that's the scripture they have. It says all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The whole thing is God breathed. It's all inspired and it's still, still profitable for training you in righteousness. 
And so you need to get to know all the prophecies, the principles, the precepts, the programs, the patterns, the pictures of the old. And you can add the people, the plot, the plan, the progression, the promises. I found some more P's since last week. There's a lot. I could probably keep going. But you need to get to know all of that. And as you do so, you're getting to know the Christ in his anticipated form. You're seeing the golden thread of the Savior in the old. And so, yes, study all 613 commandments of the law. Observe them and teach them now through the lens of the Spirit and the law of love, as the New Testament teaches us. As Jesus said, all the law and the prophets are summed up in the command to Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. You obey that law of love. You are fulfilling the law. That's how we do it. Now, as a second implication, a second practical point, as much as you should value the Old Testament, you still need to know you are a New Testament Christian, which is redundant. That's the only type there is. But if you know Christ by faith, you have entered his new covenant. You're under his jurisdiction. You've been filled with his spirit. And so now you're to submit to his law. And so it is imperative you get to know his law. If you're going to move countries, you probably should get to know the law of the country to which you've moved so that you don't do something you ought not to do. And so you need to get to know your New Testament, get to know your law of Christ. Like we said, third time now, that first that's going to be getting to know Christ himself, the Savior, his life, his death, his resurrection, his teaching. Equal authority throughout the New Testament, but you start with Christ himself. And he himself entrusted his full authority to his apostles. And so you find his will revealed in the rest of the New Testament as well. The Lord used them to add further light to the precious law of liberty, as James calls it. And so this all translates into you being men and women of the book right? Being Bereans, those who, who love God's word, who study it. You should be those who, who treasure the word. Old and new, chapter and verse, word and letter. You should be like those who say in Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. And then beyond just studying it, you know, obey it. Obey Jesus chiefly as your Lord. We're still under law. You have a Lord with a law over you. Obey it. Obey him. You know, between last week and this morning, we've seen how Jesus sets himself up as supreme far above and beyond Moses. And the New Testament affirms that. John 1:17 says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And look, Matthew especially makes this connection showing us how Jesus is very much like a new and greater Moses. He's giving us a new law. He's leading God's people in a new exodus. He's delivering us to a new promised land. And so accordingly, it's, it's Matthew who brings out the fact that Christ's words carry the highest authority for us as the people of God now, far and above the words of Moses. I mean, look really quick how the Sermon on the Mount ends in Matthew seven twenty four. This final parable he teaches to finish. Notice how interesting this is. Final words, he says, therefore, after all this teaching, everyone who hears these words of Moses, 
Now, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the fool in verse 26 is the one who hears these words of mine does not act on them. You see the emphasis. It's on the words now of Christ, not the words of Moses. Later, Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's pretty stunning because you know, we learned last time that there is a day in which this heaven and earth will pass away. And verse 18 told us on that day, the law and the prophets will pass away too. But Christ says, my words, they'll never pass away. And don't forget how Matthew's gospel ends, like the literal last passage, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. 19 and 20 says, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the law of Moses. Make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It has transitioned now that the word of Christ, the law of Christ. We teach what Christ has commanded. You can see how, how extremely Christ-centered Jesus is. It's all about his word for his people. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. We serve him now, this great eternal Savior. You know, we catch a glimpse of this glorified Lord in the transfiguration. It's Matthew 17. And you remember, it's, it's, it's by no coincidence that who else shows up at the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. They were physically there, but no doubt there to represent the law and the prophets. But when the glory of Christ appears, a voice from heaven speaks, and God the Father says what? In Matthew 17, 5. It says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He doesn't say listen to Moses, and he doesn't say listen to Elijah. He says listen to him, because the one of whom Moses and Elijah spoke has come. And the point is, we are to see all things, all scripture, all life now through the lens of Christ our Savior. And so you need to be those who hear his words and then act on them. This morning has been just a huge Bible study, but you know what? That's needed. We need to sometimes study the word deeply, gain clarity on, on difficult issues. I hope you have some clarity, but, but now it's time for you to go and do the word. Fulfill his law of love. Walk by his spirit. And even teach others to observe all that he commanded. And as you do so, then you will be called great in his kingdom of heaven. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We thank you for your word, the treasure we have in our hands that, again, often we, we take for granted. You've given us the words of life. We know that the natural man cannot even understand the things of the Spirit. We need your Spirit to, to open our eyes that we might see what you've, you've given to us, what you said for us, how we are to live. This is our question throughout the ages. How are we to live now that Christ has come? But you, you've, you've told us what we need to know. I pray you, you build in us a great appreciation, a love for your law, the Old Testament, the prophets, that we might study and take it in and apply it to our lives as it pertains to or, or goes through the Christ. Give us just a high view of your word, and the same goes for the new. And all just help us to be men and women of the book who don't forsake it. 
Now, that's our great problem. We have copies that collect dust throughout our house, but just convict us overall. The Savior has come. He's given us the words of life. How could we not care more to, to read, to study, and then to do, to live out these principles, these words of life? The Savior prayed that, that God would sanctify us in the truth, and your word is that truth. So it's a work in us, Lord, a right understanding of your word and then a cherishing of it. We want to live by it until the Christ returns. We long for that day. Your prayer comes quickly. Until that time, may we be those who, who live out this law of love, walk by his spirit, and glorify you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.